Good morning. Uh, this morning we'll be studying Galatians chapter 2, verses Bibles. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to make use of the Bibles under the seat uh, in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible to call your own at home, it would make our day if you took one of those home with you to use uh, in your own time. We'll be reading Galatians chapter 2, which is marked by the large numbers in your Bible, and verses 15 through 21, which is marked by the small numbers in your Bible. And you can find our passage this morning on page 973. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have revealed in it who you are and what you have done for us. This morning, we pray that you would make this word clear to us, that we might be able to see you clearly in your glory without hindrance and without confusion. Help us to see the glory of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us to see that we have been crucified with Christ. Help us to learn to live by faith in the Son of God and to seek no other means of justification than by faith in him alone. And help us to see that our sins have not merely been forgiven, but we have been purchased so that we might live to you. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever thought, felt, or said one of the following statements? I want my life to count for something. I want my life to mean something. I want to make a difference with my life. I wish that I were good enough. If I could only manage to do these things, then maybe I could be accepted. If I could accomplish this goal, perform at that level, or have this kind of influence, then maybe my life would be worthwhile. Then it would count for something. Now, if you're like me, you can probably say with confidence that at some point in your life, you have thought or felt one of these things. In fact, you may hear them and think that it's only natural for a person to have these kinds of feelings. It seems like no matter what someone's belief system or cultural context may be, we all long to be accepted. We all desire that when it's all said and done, the verdict on our life will be job well done. When our lives are weighed in the scales, we want to show that we have measured up. 
We want to be pronounced good or noteworthy or influential or noble. In other words, we're all seeking some kind of justification. Now, some may seek religious justification where they seek to please God with the good works that they do. But the desire for justification is not only held by the religious. Don't the irreligious also take part in social action, seek to win friends and influence people, or try to create some life's work or magnum opus that would make their mark on the world and justify their existence? It seems then that at some level, justification is a perennial issue. Most of us, if not all of us, by some measure seek to be counted as worthy, as just, or as righteous. And if you take a a look at the different ways that humans seek to be justified, you'll find that uh, nearly as many different pursuits and attempts as you will find people. But they all hold one thing in common. They all seek justification by means of their own efforts. Whether that's by their commitment to do good deeds or by their observance of religious rituals or by whatever influence they attempt to make, the primary agent of justification is themselves. And so this is what makes the Bible's presentation of justification so controversial, is it not? While every false religion gives a code of morals and customs and every self-help guru Uh, a selection of tips and habits, and every philosopher gives a pathway to achieve the good, Scripture gives us a person. And this idea that justification is received simply by believing in this person is uh, kind of naturally offensive to us, isn't it? Something almost seems off. It seems uh, a little bit too, too good to be true, perhaps, seems like there's got to be something that we need to do in order to merit justification. And so this is essentially the problem that the Apostle Paul is addressing here in our passage today. The Galatian church that he's writing to here was being persuaded by false teachers to turn from the gospel that they had received from Paul and to believe that their justification was not achieved by Christ alone but that they had to return to the works of the law in order to achieve a right standing before God. And so it's Paul's attempt in this passage to exhort his audience who had received Christ by faith not to abandon this gospel to the former means to attain righteousness. And so this theme will inform our main point for our time this morning. Do not go back on your former means of justification or do not go back to your former means of justification because you have been justified by faith in Christ and to God. And we'll look at this at this main point in three points. First, the means of justification. Second, the objection to justification. And third, the goal of justification. Notice first the means of justification. Right after rebuking Peter for his hypocrisy, Paul gives a theological lesson uh, by contrasting the identities of the Jews and the non-Jews. And so in saying we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, he's not claiming that people like he and the apostle Peter are morally perfect, 
but he's appealing to the inherent righteousness that was thought to be associated with being born into the covenant of Israel. The Jews were specially chosen by God. To them belong the patriarchs, the adoption, the glory, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, as Paul says in Romans 9. They were called to be a holy nation. They were given the law to be purified so that through them, the God of the universe might redeem the world and dwell amongst creation. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, were wholly separate. They worshipped false gods. They dwelt in darkness. Their deeds were in rebellion against God. In short, they were unclean. So Paul begins his argument here by describing his Jewish identity in contrast to that of the depraved Gentiles. But notice where he goes immediately after this in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, yes, we are Jews who have been given this glorious identity and holy law, but we know that this is not what makes us right in God's eyes. Whatever wall Paul builds up between the Jews and Gentiles in verse 15 immediately comes down in verse 16. Whatever righteousness they may have earned through the works of the law, their circumcision, their observing of the Sabbath, or the keeping of the Ten Commandments, turns out to make them no more righteous than the Gentile sinners. So knowing this, what is the response of Jews like Paul? Look again in verse 16. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. So friends, let's marvel at the simplicity of this. Justification, the object perennial, perennially sought by humans of all creeds and conduct what the Jews and Judaizers thought was achieved through the meticulous observance of the Old Testament law. What Roman Catholics believe is achieved after a lifetime of sacraments, holy living, and cleansing in purgatory. And what our irreligious neighbors seek through ambition or vocational or relational pursuits, the Bible gives it to us with these three simple words. Believe in Christ. It's a profoundly simple solution to the age-old dilemma. Knowing that we were made to worship and enjoy God, and Adam's sin, we have rebelled and made ourselves enemies of God. And so our quest now is how we might be made in right standing with God. And it's not through meriting our own righteousness, but through believing in Christ, who took the penalty we deserved on the cross and having his righteousness counted to us as our own. So by faith in Christ and his finished work, we receive a right standing before God, have our sins forgiven, and are restored to a right relationship with him. And so the means of our justification is faith in Jesus Christ, in trusting in him as our savior and in making him the Lord of our life, repenting and turning from our sins and trusting in him alone. But I want to notice uh, the second point that Paul makes about believing in Christ in verse 16. He says, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to, number one, be justified by faith in Christ, and, number two, not by works of the law. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, justification is by faith in Christ exclusively, There is no alternative or additional means to being made right with God. 
There's nothing other than Christ, and there's nothing in addition to Christ. And this is the issue that is facing the Galatian church. Though they had begun by faith in Christ and by believing in him alone, they were tempted by false teachers from the outside to believe that the works of the Old Testament law were also necessary for justification. But in going back to an old standard and adding something to faith in Christ, they were actually abandoning the gospel of Christ. Friends, Scripture is not ambiguous on this point. As sinners from the womb, we stand outside of a right relationship with God, and being made right in Him is by faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you're here and uh, you would not call yourself a Christian, I would like to thank you for being with us this morning. It is a joy for us to welcome you here. But the reason that we at this church love to uh, welcome unbelievers to our gathering is, and to join us is because we ultimately long for you to know Jesus Christ. But our prayer is that you would see here in the Bible that you have been separated from God and the only way to be made right with him is by trusting in Jesus Christ who took the punishment that we deserve on the cross. And friends, notice that there is no middle position on this. We cannot treat Jesus simply as a moral example. We can't simply add his teachings to our current life and worldview. We can't be indifferent to him and think that so long as we live a good life, God will just accept us in the end. Jesus himself says that no one comes to God except through him. So we either trust in him and make him the supreme Lord of our lives, or we remain in sin and enemies of God. And one day we will all be judged according to God's perfectly holy and righteous standard that because of our sin we can never live up to on our own. The text here tells us that by works of the law no one will be justified. And if justification cannot come through the standard revealed in God's Old Testament law, then how much more will our own standard fall short? But if we place our trust in Christ and accept his work on our behalf, his goodness will be counted as ours and we will have eternal life. So I invite you to, to do this today, to turn from your old way of life, from wherever you sought justification before, and seek salvation in him alone. And to the Christian today, I would like us to be reminded afresh of the exclusivity of justification by Christ. When we say with Paul that we have believed him, we are saying that we have trusted his person and his work to be enough for us, that we desire no other means of justification. But how many of us functionally, functionally, even if not consciously, believe that we are in need of something in addition to Christ? Do you serve the church a little more or read your Bible a little extra as a means to make up for sin in your life? Do you try to make your good and godly deeds outnumber your ungodly deeds and measure your righteousness in that way? Do you measure your standing before God in terms of how many rules you have and have not broken? Or perhaps some of us are frequently tempted to return to things we sought justification in before we were a Christian. 
Maybe we've returned to seeking justification in the eyes of the American dream by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and making a name for ourselves. Maybe we've returned to needing affirmation and acceptance in the eyes of others. Or perhaps we're not satisfied with the normalcy of the lives we live, of the place we work, the the home that we live in, and the things that we accomplish, and unconsciously think that we need something more for our lives to be seen as worthwhile, whether it's more influence for our work to have a wider impact or to have a bigger platform. My friends, do not go back to these former standards for Christ alone is your means of justification. But faith alone and Christ alone as the means to justification is naturally counterintuitive to us. And and Paul's audience in Galatians is no exception to this phenomenon. And so that brings us to the second point this morning, the objection to justification. Look with me at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So here Paul frames his opponent's objection to his insistence that we're justified by faith alone. In their eyes, if justification by faith excludes justification by works of the law, then this must mean that Christ promotes law-breaking. And so if Christ pronounces righteous those whom the law pronounces guilty, is he not then serving sin? Is he not subverting the standard of righteousness for most of Israel's history? Or in other words, by justifying sinners, is Jesus letting people have their cake and eat it too? So Paul's response to this is an emphatic, absolutely not. Paul wouldn't dare affirm such a thing. But on what grounds? And so in, instead of immediately telling them how it is, uh, how it is that Christ can justify sinners, he first subverts the assumption at the center of his opponent's arguments. His opponents assume that, uh, that if he seeks justification in Christ apart from the law, that he will necessarily transgress the law, making him a sinner. But Paul reverses this claim by showing them that it's not seeking righteousness apart from the law that makes him guilty, but by returning to the law after trusting in Christ for his salvation. Look at verse 18. He says, For if I rebuild what I, ret- what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, he's saying that it isn't, what, it isn't when he's justified in Christ that he's condemned. It's when he returns to the law that he's condemned. It's as if he's saying, For if I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. So to see more, more color behind this argument, take a look with me at verses 11 through 14, right before this passage that we're reading this morning. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what's happened in this scene? Peter 
who had received the vision from the Lord that pronounced all things clean, which we read this morning, who knew that salvation in Christ was going to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, had at one point been living consistently with this truth. He knew that he had believed in Christ, and so his justification did not demand that he observe the old purity laws and separate himself from the Gentiles while eating. But fearing those who insisted upon the necessity of circumcision, he abandoned this principle and returned to an old standard of righteousness by separating from the Gentiles again. In other words, Peter rebuilt what he had once torn down when he believed in Christ. But what happens when this former metric of righteousness is reconstructed? Both he and the Gentiles stand condemned. Why? Because verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified. If Peter, as a Jew, is guilty by the law standards, so much more are the Gentiles. And so Paul's argument isn't that justification by, so, excuse me, Paul's argument is that, ju- that it isn't justification by faith that Christ makes one a transgressor. It's by returning to justification by works of the law that makes one a transgressor. It is reconstructing the edifice that is necessarily torn down by seeking justification in Christ that he becomes a sinner. And so he makes this clear in the next verse. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. By faith in Jesus Christ, Paul has taken on a completely new identity. The bondage of the law no longer held sway over his life. It can no longer demand his absolute devotion, command meticulous observation in every moral and ceremonial matter, and still end up condemning him since no human can completely fulfill its demands. So if he's died to the law, and if his righteousness is no longer measured by his performance of the law, but by new life in Christ, why would he turn back? Why would he ever go back to the old way? And as we'll see in more detail in a moment, there is a radical break in Paul's mind between his former identity as one who sought justification by works of the law and his present identity as one justified by the blood of Christ. And this is not brought about by some special cognitive assent in Jesus, nor does it entail a a change of mind on the part of God after the law was shown to be unable to justify No, Christ is no plan B for God. He was always the plan with regards to the law. Paul tells us in chapter 3 that the law was added until the promised seed could come. Christ was always the one who the law was about. He was the one that every precept, command, and sacrifice pointed to. He is the end or goal of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. And as the law's true meaning And as its true end, he, as the Son of God incarnate, lived under it perfectly, something that no sinful man could do. And in fulfilling it perfectly, he bore the curse of the law in our place and dying on the cross, having satisfied perfectly the wrath of God and penalty for breaking the law. And so now, by placing our faith in Christ, we receive the righteousness of Christ that he attained in his perfect life while our old, sinful, law-breaking self is crucified with him. He has ushered in a completely new stage of history. So for Paul, to rebuild the law would not only reassert a standard under, under which he would be condemned, 
It would also be, as one commentator puts it, to reverse the course of history. It would be in a, an attempt to undo what Christ had done on our behalf. And he indicates this in verse 21. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So the objection uh, to justification fails on two accounts. On one hand, going back to the law as a means to attain righteousness condemns both Jew and Gentile. Having been justified by faith in Christ apart from the works of the law means that to rebuild righteousness by works of the law would automatically count one as a sinner and as condemned. But it would also undo God's plan of redemption for his people as well as the work of Christ on the cross where he fulfilled the law and bore its curse on our behalf. So the Galatians are not to return to this former metric of righteousness, but are to refine their righteousness only by faith in Christ. Yet it seems that there's still one question to be answered on the nature of justification in Christ, and that brings us to our third and final point, the goal of justification. So if the law cannot justify but only condemn... And if righteousness is therefore through the finished work of Christ, does the doctrine of justification simply mean that those who believe in Christ and go on living in sin? What compels the Christian to live righteously if righteousness is not through the works of the law? So here it's, it's, it's here that we see that while the gospel of Jesus Christ can never be less than justification by faith alone, it also tells us something more than justification. Justification is but one of the many benefits that we receive in salvation in Christ. Look again at verse 19. For through the law I die to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so first of all, we see the, the purpose that Paul dies to the law is for the purpose of living to God. Another way of saying this is that he dies to the law in order that he might live for God. By faith in Christ, he's not simply granted forgiveness of sins, but it's restored into right relationship with God. And so having this relationship restored, he is now able to live in true obedience to him in a way that he was not able to before. But we also see that Paul does not simply receive the benefits of Christ apart from the person of Christ. Christ is not simply crucified for him, but Paul in his old self is crucified with him. And so it's no longer the believer who lives, but it is Christ in them. So this is the phenomenon that is called union with Christ. When we're saved, we partake in the benefits of salvation. We are regenerated and given a new heart. By repentance and faith, we receive justification, the forgiveness of sins, Christ's righteousness credited to us, and reconciliation with God. We receive adoption as sons and daughters of God, co-heirs of Christ's inheritance laid up for us. We are sanctified, meaning we stand before God as holy and blameless, and also that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made ever more like Christ. And we also receive glorification, pointing us to our future resurrection, completion, and perfect confirmation into Christ's image. 
So all of these benefits we receive in salvation, but they're not disconnected pearls on a string. We receive them insofar as we receive the person of Christ by being united to him through his spirit. So this is how Paul is able to say that he has been crucified with Christ. United with him in salvation, his old self is crucified with him and his new self is resurrected to live to God by faith in him. And this union with Christ is so intimate that Paul says it is no longer he who lives, but it is Christ who lives in him. Now this verse doesn't mean that the believer is a puppet or a robot being controlled somehow by Christ being in them. It also doesn't mean that Christ is now uh, living vicariously on their behalf. What Paul is saying is that he is not the source of his spiritual life. Spiritually, he was dead in his sins with no true life in him. And so it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of Christ given to him, that he lives this new life as a redeemed person, as one who has been saved and resurrected in Christ. And this doesn't mean that the believer who receives the Holy Spirit immediately becomes perfect, as Christ is perfect, but it means that they receive a new principle of spiritual life and that they are perfected as they grow into Christ. And so this is how the doctrine of justification by faith alone does not equal antinomianism or being forgiven without any reference to a change of life. Now, Paul is saying just the opposite, that through his faith in Christ, his old self dies with Christ. An utter separation has taken place between the old life of the believer and the new life. He writes later in uh, chapter 6, verse 14, Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision matters for anything, nor, uh, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The identity of the believer is wholly bound to Christ. We have been taken from one world and transferred into another. Our old, corrupt, and sinful self has been crucified. It's been killed, and we have been made wholly new. And so our former means of justification or self-justification are torn down, and having been justified in Christ, we now live by faith in him. And so with this doctrine of union with Christ that grounds the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the question is not whether we should go on sinning that grace may abound. The question is how we could ever return to our former manner of living now that we have been made new. Look again at the second half of verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, that is, the, the life I now live while I am still here on this earth, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, is this the statement that defines how you live your life? Is this the statement that defines your identity? Because this is how the Son of God defines you. Believer, how many hours and days pass without us reflecting on this truth? That the Son of God the one for whom and through whom the galaxies were put into their place, loves us and gave himself for us. 
How infrequently do we behold the man upon the cross and our sin upon his shoulders and the wrath of God that should have been ours placed onto him in our place? And how could we ever return to our formal ways of life or rebuild our former standards of justification or self-justification? And how could we let our lives be defined by anything else? How could we ever live in any other way than by faith in this Son of God? According to a mostly fictional film based on the life of Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, uh, who had the privilege of serving as an officer in the British Army during World War II. Uh, he served in the Pacific Theater. Uh, his, his calling as a, an officer of the British Army was a prestigious and noble honor to serve in his position. And so with this position and calling came the duty of serving and defending the crown and country faithfully and honorably while striving without regard for his life to defeat her foes and enemies. Now, at some point during the war, it came to pass that he was taken as a prisoner of war by the Japanese army and was sentenced with many of his countrymen and other allied soldiers to a camp in occupied Thailand. Uh, And now this camp was a forced labor camp, and the main project the prisoners were sentenced to work on was a bridge that crossed over a very deep river gorge. Uh, And this bridge was to serve as a crucial connecting point so that the Japanese army could more swiftly transport cargo and supplies by train. And so as one might imagine, many many of these allied prisoners of war didn't take too kindly to being forced uh, to a building project that would serve the progress of the enemy. And so understandably, the, the progress was understandably slow. They ran into many setbacks and a whole litany of issues that, uh, that led to the frustration of Japanese officials. But the British officer, Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, was also displeased with the progress of the bridge. Such poor results were a poor reflection on the mighty British army. He wasn't about to put up with these standards. The world had to see on display the great works of this army, the resolve of these men under harsh circumstances, their dedication to excellence, their ability to perform nobly in any situation. And so Nicholson set out to oversee the task and demand the swift completion of this bridge. And soon enough, it was complete. And it was a magnificent achievement. The feat of engineering took brilliant planning and strategy. The resourcefulness of the British army was clearly evident And the product of their craft was a beautiful sight to behold. But what was the problem here? The problem is that that which Nicholson had set out to tear down, the enemy of the British army, he was all of a sudden laboring to rebuild. Yes, the British army was to be committed to excellence and to do its job well and nobly, They were to strive to get the job done at all costs. But what Nicholson had forgotten is that his identity as an officer of the British Army was not defined by the marvelous and prestigious works that he could accomplish. It was defined by his faithfulness to the crown. Nicholson could boast all he wanted in his works in the construction of the gorgeous bridge, but as long as they didn't flow out of his identity as a servant of his nation, they were worth nothing. 
They were a building up of what he by definition was opposed to. They were a seeking of justification and something that could only condemn him. So friends, having been justified by faith in Christ and having been united to Christ in his crucifixion, we have received a new identity, a new righteous standing in Christ that marks a radical break from our former selves. And this new standing, this new reality that we are a part of means that we are to live by faith in the Son of God. So this, on the one hand, means that whatever our former method of justification may have been, whether it was good works, trying to live up to our own law, or justification in the eyes of the world through our pursuit of influence or acceptance, this former standard has been torn down, and in place, uh, and in place Christ and his righteousness has been granted to us. So we are no longer members of the present evil age, but of the glorious kingdom that has come and is coming in Christ. So Christian, as a soldier of the kingdom, who has been saved by faith, and who has been saved in Christ, and who has been saved to God, live your faith, or live your life by faith in the Son of God, and do not rebuild the structures of your former life that you have died to. Do you worry that the work that you do is meaningless and will have no lasting impact? Remember that you live by faith in the Son of God, and even if the world does not honor your labors, he will honor, he will honor these labors in all that is done out of living out of faithfulness to him. Do you serve or practice good works as a means to build up your own righteousness or because or because you have been justified. Friends, practicing good works as a means to build up your own righteousness is self-justification. But practicing good works because you have been justified is living by faith to God. Do you seek to define your identity based on what you do? Good works, accomplishments, acceptance, Or does your identity define what you do? If you've been remade in Christ, you are not defined by what you do, but what Christ has done for you. And what Christ has done for you compels how you are to live in response. And finally, are you prone to forget who you are in Christ? Well, on the one hand, the Christian life is one of forgetfulness. We are a forgetful people, after all. But even more than this, the Christian life is a life of re-remembrance. We must continue, continue to remind ourselves afresh of, of what God has done for us in his Son. And what God has done for us in Christ is a story that must dominate and rise above every other story the world is constantly throwing at us. And so while there's no quick solution to this, it's an endeavor that lasts a lifetime. Uh, and, so to, and so to achieve this, to, to have this, this story of what God has done for us in Christ, let me leave you with some challenges. Shape your daily worship routines in a manner that is similar to our services. You can even take one of your programs home with you. 
because we intentionally structure our liturgies along the storyline of the gospel. And we do this because we want this story to be ingrained into the muscle memory of God's people so that they might uh, always have this, have this identity in Christ in mind. Remind yourself each morning and evening of this gospel truth that the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Invite someone in this church to meet regularly, to read scripture and to pray with you and for you. Allow the fellowship of other believers to stir you up to love and good works and to remind you of who you are in Christ. But at the end of it all, friends, remember that it is not you who gets to the finish line on your own. It is Christ in you. And so remembering that it is his spirit that works within us, whom we have received by faith in Christ and to God, let us not return to the structures of the world or our former lives that in Christ we tear down. But let us live by faith in the one who saved us by faith. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And we praise you that in him we have forgiveness of sins, a righteous standing before you, adoption as your sons and daughters, an inheritance kept in heaven for us, sanctification by your spirit, and by your grace, glorification. We pray that these truths of your word might be precious to us, that they'd shape us and form us into your image, and they, that they might always remind us of the gospel of Christ and who we are in him. And we pray that who we are in him might compel us to live lives that are holy and blameless, that we might persevere to the end. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.